Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning, and we are pleased to be joined by Liza Andrews and Dan Cargill. They are with the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Liza is Director of Public Policy and Communications, and Dan is a former law enforcement officer and now Director of Law Enforcement Services. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Good morning, Aaron. Well, first of all, some exciting news for the coalition. You recently announced you have a new executive director. Yeah, the board of directors and the staff here are very excited to announce that Megan Scanlon uh, will join us as our next president and CEO. Um, she officially starts uh, later this month on June 28th. Um, but Megan, you know, brings with her a wealth of, uh, you know, both government and nonprofit experience. Um, she currently serves as the executive director of Women and Family Life Center in Guilford, um, which works with women and families in crisis. So she's very well versed in the impact of uh, domestic violence on survivors and their children. And she's really ready to hit the ground running to make sure that we have an accessible service system across the state that serves all survivors of domestic violence. Liza, for people who aren't familiar, tell us all the services that the Coalition Against Domestic Violence offers. Sure. So CCADV has 18 member organizations um, that provide services across the state. They're that local ongoing support for survivors. And their services range from, you know, the what probably people are most familiar with, which is emergency shelter. But they also are able to get victims housed in a number of other long term housing solutions. Um, as well as, you know, safety planning, that basic just listening, let's talk through your situation and figure out how we can keep you safe. Um, they do one-on-one -on -one counseling, support groups, child advocacy. Um, and then one of the big ones is that they have um, advocates who work in the courts. So they can be there to support survivors through both family court issues, such as applying for a restraining order, or on some aspects of what they might be dealing with related to divorce and custody, as well as the criminal court side, when their abuser is arrested, there's an advocate there with them. So often when we hear about criminal cases, we hear the term victim. Tell us why it's so important to use the term survivor when we're talking about domestic abuse. The survivors of domestic violence are some of the most, you know, resilient, strongest, individuals that I personally have ever met. Um, you know, domestic violence 
rarely takes place in a vacuum. It's rarely one event. Um, this is something that survivors deal with over a long period of time, um, controlling behaviors that can sometimes escalate to physical violence. But regardless of whether there's physical violence, those aspects of control and emotional abuse really take a toll. Um, and so, uh, you know, they are the definition of survivor when they come out the other end of it. And we're going to get into a little more about coercive control and Jennifer's Law later in the program. Unfortunately, there have been two high-profile instances of deadly domestic violence in the Hartford area in recent weeks in South Windsor and more recently in Windsor Locks. Dan, I know you can't speak to any individual cases, but are there some common denominators that can lead to an escalation like this? Sure, Aaron. It has been a very difficult month for many of the families, the friends, the co-workers of these victims, um, as well as in the communities. But we've identified some traits, some behaviors, some patterns uh, through Connecticut's Fatality Review Task Force uh, and some things that have popped out during the reviews of these intimate partner homicides. We found a deep correlation between mental health and addiction uh, in both the offender and the survivor or the victim of that homicide. We've also, through our lethality assessment program, have identified specific behaviors that not only here in Connecticut, but nationally have been identified as behaviors or times that can lead to or are the most dangerous for survivors of domestic violence. And through the lethality assessment program, we've identified the leaving or separating from that offender as one of the most dangerous and difficult times for that survivor. If you correlate that or if you add on the strangulation or trying to choke that behavior of that victim and then spying or threatening or stalking behaviors, if you add up all three of those particular times or behaviors, those have been identified as some of the most dangerous times or behaviors for victims of domestic violence. Domestic violence can also be among the most dangerous instances for law enforcement. That's correct. And unfortunately, across the country, many law enforcement have lost their lives responding to domestic violence calls. Now, you say one of the the most pivotal times can be when a survivor makes that decision to, to leave. How can one go about doing that to reduce the chances that that things are going to escalate? Well, connecting with a domestic violence program and services is key to their safety and developing a safety plan. But it's not only if they choose to leave the situation. Separation can also be a protective order or a restraining order, or even when law enforcement is responding to the call. So separation takes many different forms, and it's really that loss of control that the offender or that that individual who's using violence or coercive control is feeling, which then leads to additional violence or increased violence. At the onset of the pandemic, we heard a lot of concern that there were going to be more cases of domestic violence, many going unreported. What are we seeing now that we're emerging from the pandemic? Are, are we seeing things that go beyond just anecdotal reports? Well, interestingly enough, while we have, first of all, we have a really good relationship with our law enforcement here in Connecticut. Connecticut is the only state that has 100% of our 
law enforcement engaging in the lethality assessment program. So during the initial first four months of the pandemic, I was in contact weekly with our law enforcement across the state and most of the departments were reporting fewer calls for service. But interestingly enough is there were some cities and some areas within the state that were seeing a much higher number of calls for service for family violence. Uh, now, looking at the lethality assessment program data, the intimate partner response that the lethality screen is, is part of uh, actually stayed pretty consistent in the same throughout that beginning part of the pandemic. So that was just one of the interesting parts of the, the initial phase, but unfortunately, uh, as of recently, as things have begun to open up and people are a little more secure in their, um, their health choices or, or what's going on in terms of their health. And unfortunately, uh, we have seen a uptick in calls for service and obviously uh, fatalities recently this month. Talk a little about what that lethality assessment entails. Certainly. So the lethality assessment is a screening tool for intimate partner relationships. When law enforcement is called uh, to the scene for whatever the uh, incident may may be, uh, during the investigation, if they if the law enforcement has identified that there's been some type of violence that had occurred or they believe may occur in the future, or if they've been to that household for a, uh, a time or two prior for verbal arguments, the officer will uh, speak to the victim or the survivor afterwards uh, after the investigation of why they were there is concluded, and they'll ask them a question. I would like to ask you a few questions to better understand what's been going on in your relationship. So it's an 11-question screening tool that was developed by Dr. Jacqueline Campbell uh, from Maryland, and uh, it is a the results of 2,500 intimate partner homicides that she researched. And of the questions that she actually developed and that the common behaviors or circumstances in those homicides, the result is this screening tool. Over the years, how else has it changed in, in terms of how law enforcement responds to domestic violence? Was it years ago that police would arrive and often arrest both parties just to, to, to calm things down and, and now, what, what's the situation when there's, you know, a clear uh, aggressor in the dispute? Yeah, well, Connecticut had a, well, or has a mandatory arrest uh, provision within the statute for domestic violence. So if there is probable cause that exists, uh, officers will make the arrest for the appropriate crime. Uh, unfortunately, that also led to a number of dual arrests throughout Connecticut's history uh, since the late and mid 80s. Recently, Connecticut has adopted a dominant aggressor provision. So 2019 was the first full year of law enforcement making a dominant aggressor decision based upon the circumstances of the event. So with that, they've actually reduced dual arrest rates quite a bit. Um, I believe we're down to around 10% here in uh, Connecticut, whereas we were much higher uh, in the 18 percentile range before. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Dan Cargill and Liza Andrews. Dan is Director of Law Enforcement Services for the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Liza is Director of Public Policy and Communications for the Coalition. 
Now, looking at the numbers from the pandemic, as we said, there was that concern about an increase in domestic violence leading in, but you say things remained relatively stable, and now as we emerge, we're seeing an uptick in numbers. Any best guess on where we go from here? And to make it clear, Aaron, this was for law enforcement responding. Our domestic violence programs throughout the state were experiencing a higher call volume within their domestic violence programs and here at Safe Connect. Um, so that would just make that clarification. So were things not escalating or were things going underreported? Were people not calling the police as often? Correct. I believe there were a number of reasons for them not calling law enforcement, not exposing other family members to law enforcement and the possibility of becoming sick. Um, so, yes, there were we're getting some anecdotal evidence or information that says that law enforcement were not being called, but the programs were being called for safety planning and some services. And in terms of, of emerging from the, the pandemic, are shelters open and, and operating as they always have been or or were things kind of curtailed as as we were at the the depths of COVID-19? Yeah, the shelters have been and, and the full spectrum of domestic violence services have been um, up running and available 24-7 as always throughout the entire pandemic. Um, you know, I think related to the shelter, one of the big struggles um, that our, our member organizations have had um, you know, is that they have had to, their shelters have had to abide by, um, you know, all of the, uh, you know, COVID related um, precautions in terms of social distancing. Um, you know, our shelters have always run, at least in, you know, I've been with the coalition for nine years, our shelters have been running over capacity um, every single year consistently, usually about 100 21 to 126 uh, percent capacity. So that just means that our shelters are full and over full year round. Um, there is a big need for domestic violence shelter services. So what our members had to do, because traditionally with the overflow, you know, members have always had maybe one or two um, survivors or families in hotel at a time. Um, but they have also in the shelter traditionally maybe doubled up a couple of individual survivors. Maybe they used a common room um, as a bedroom for a family for a short period of time. But during the pandemic, what they had to do is put more survivors and families in hotels so that their shelters could re, you know, could adhere to social distancing guidelines. So that has resulted in, you know, a pretty steep and unexpected cost for our programs. Um, you know, now a year later, um, they have spent well over a million dollars unexpectedly um, on these hotel costs. And, you know, we see them probably definitely continuing um, through this calendar year. Um, and, you know, we're, we're all kind of bracing for the end of, um, you know, the current eviction moratoriums um, and how that might impact other survivors who haven't yet come to us for um, housing services. Is there any chance that your network might be able to tap COVID relief dollars to, to help cover some of that? Um, you know, we certainly have, uh, you know, luckily our, um, our recently departed uh, CEO, and I know Megan, as soon as she as she's on board, you know, um, our, our departed CEO worked diligently to get um, both private funding and then, you know, make sure we were well connected 
um, with elected officials to make sure, you know, we were also seeing some of the um, government um, funding that has come in. So we've, we've certainly um, tapped from uh, both, um, you know, both pots, uh, but, you know, it's, it, it's, it's continuing to be an expense, um, you know, that our, uh, that our members did not necessarily, and, and no one would have, right? No one expected uh, this pandemic or the effects of it. So Now, while all of this has been happening, there's also been action at the, the state legislature and really a, a major update this year in Connecticut's domestic violence laws in the form of Jennifer's Law related to coercive control. Tell us what's happening in Hartford. Yeah, so Senate Bill 1091 um, is an effort that CCADV um, has been working on. It's it's uh, seen a few different bill numbers throughout the session, but where we have landed at this point in session is Senate Bill 1091. Um, so our major uh, legislative champions this year have been Senator Flexer, who's been working with us for, uh, for, with it for a number of years, and then also um, Senator Kasser, um, has helped to shepherd this bill through. Um, it's it really what it does is provide a comprehensive set of protections for victims of domestic violence um, that are designed to address the real experience of survivors and with all forms of domestic violence, not just physical abuse. So by expanding the definition of family violence in Connecticut's restraining order, as we do in Senate Bill 1091, um, to include coercive control, we'll be able to ensure court-ordered relief for the many non-physical tactics um, that abusers use to gain and maintain control over their victims. Um, so really coercive control, for those who don't know, um, entails power and control over the victim through actions such as isolation. You know, you're not gonna see your family and friends. They don't wanna see you. You know, that's something that abusers tell their victims all the time. Nobody wants to see you. Nobody wants to be your friend. Um, they use, uh, humiliation, um, intimidation, domination, you know, insulting their partner in front of others. Um, and then definitely financial control is a big piece. We know that threats to um, maybe third parties or even the family pet, you know, I'm going to harm our family pet if you don't do what I want you to do. So we want to make sure that actions like that um, are covered in the restraining order and that victims can seek relief. Um, because again, these aren't often single incidents, these are, this is a purposeful pattern of behavior that takes place over a period of time that kind of leaves the victim completely dependent on their abuser. Are there other pieces of legislation at the Capitol that you are advocating for or against as we enter the, really the final days of, of the session? Really, Senate Bill 1091 is our, our priority bill um, this session. Uh, you know, it has a lot of other sections to it uh, besides just the coercive control piece. You know, we have um, we have sections in there that actually create um, a pro bono legal representation um, uh, program for low income survivors when they are applying for a restraining order. Um, and this will be in some of the uh, state's larger courts, but that legal representation is really key for survivors when they're applying for a restraining order. There are some studies that have shown uh, the likelihood that a victim is able to obtain a restraining order um, goes from 32% to 83% when they have a lawyer present. So, um, you know, we have a lot of pieces in this bill that are going to provide comprehensive protection for survivors. Um, it has passed with overwhelming bipartisan support every step of the way, came out of the Senate on a 35 to 1 vote. Um, we expect that it's going to be called in the House tomorrow, and we know we have broad support there, and we're really 
thankful to all of the legislators, um, you know, knowing what we need to do to protect victims. And we are speaking on Thursday, so by the time this airs, it may have gained final legislative yeah. approval. Yep. Uh, if people, <laughs> if people are experiencing domestic violence, how can they reach out? And I know it has to be done discreetly in some cases. Sure. So, um, actually, uh, we started here um, back in 2019, Safe Connect, which is now Connecticut's di- uh, domestic violence resource hub. It's run here out of CCADV. Um, and it provides that first um, first point of contact, single door of entry to access all domestic violence services throughout the state of Connecticut. So, um, you know, what we have here is a 24-7 bilingual, multicultural staff who really understands the lived experiences of all survivors. So, you know, folks can speak with a, with a certified advocate. Um, again, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Safe Connect is always available, holidays included. Um, and they can either call or text 888-774-2900. Or they can visit ctsafeconnect.org, where they can live chat or email with an advocate. And again, our advocates are here. You just want someone to listen because nobody has, you know, listened to you about what you're experiencing or you're not sure if what you're experiencing is abuse. Our advocates will just listen. If you want to start talking through some options and things that, you know, resources that might be available to help you and your family stay safe, they can also provide those resources. Talk to me about maybe a friend or a family member who thinks there might be violence going on with with someone they know, and they might be a little leery to to come forward and and, and talk to them about it. How do you approach a situation like that? First and foremost, we welcome friends and family to contact Safe Connect. Um, You know, if you want to talk through an advocate, um, how you might approach your your loved one, your family, your friend um, to talk to them. They are certainly our advocates can certainly um, give you tips and suggestions. I think, you know, primarily it, the primary thing we would recommend someone do is to listen without judgment. You know, if you do go and say, hey, I think something might be going on. Do you want to tell me about it? Just, just be there. Just be an ear. Listen to what they have to say and don't have any expectations about what their actions are going to be, that they would handle the situation the way you would handle the situation. Because, you know, with domestic violence at its core, it's about control. So this person is probably dealing with a lot of control, a lot of limited options in their life. Um, You know, so it's helpful if they have someone who is going to listen without judgment and support them no matter what they choose to do. Because, you know, for many domestic violence survivors, the person that is hurting them is the person that they love. So they don't necessarily want the relationship to end. They want the abuse to end. Um, And then I think, you know, the other thing is to know that, that we exist, to know that Safe Connect, CCADV, and our 18 member organizations are there to offer safe, free, and confidential services. So that's a resource that you could provide to your family or friend when they're ready to access it. Dan, what should the key takeaway be from the law enforcement perspective? So I would first say that it's very important to connect first with a domestic violence advocate and talk through the many options they may have. And in some circumstances, contacting and getting law enforcement involved is the correct 
an appropriate way to go, but they also have to be aware of what that uh, entails. Uh, law enforcement, um, they do a really, really good job here in Connecticut, but there are specific policies and laws that are in place where law enforcement may have to act and may have to arrest the individual that they're trying, uh, that is, is causing the abuse. So I think very the very first thing is to contact the domestic violence advocate, walk through the options, and, and then from there, get law enforcement involved. And certainly if there is violence actively occurring, law enforcement is there 24 seven to assist and protect um, any survivor of domestic violence. He is Dan Cargill, joined by Liza Andrews, both with the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.